Yeah, so um, the circumstances of like me becoming a member of the diaspora was that uh, I was born in Algeria. And then my family during the mid-90s fled Algeria because of this violent, um, it's sometimes described as a civil war, um, but it's not really that simple. And so I was part of a quite a large community that settled in um, mostly Western Europe of people who left Algeria in the early 90s. Um, and there was, you know, a, a large community and I knew uh, and was fully aware that I was part of two new communities. One which is the newly settled Algerian community and the other was the British English community. Um, and so it was a constant balancing act and trying to like fit both um, and I guess naturally during your younger years you try to rebel against your own community and conform to this idealized community and so yeah I think for social survival I uh, adapted as much as I could to this idea of what a good British person was um, and it was more of an aesthetic adaptation I think deep down I knew that you know and I'm sure it's the same for <clears throat> any immigrant which is that you know that you could never truly be seen as um, part of your kind of adopted community but I made lots of aesthetic tweaks. So I was very careful about uh, the, the style of English I used um, because I knew that like in Britain, there is a deeply entrenched class system um, of like respectable ways of speaking and talking. And I basically had to study how people interacted with each other and the signals, <clears throat> the signals that they give. And I just essentially tried to mimic them. And in the early part of my career, which was more in uh, tech and innovation, and I kind of started my own um, virtual reality company, I understood quite well the clientele that I was going after and how to make them comfortable enough to begin to talk about having a business relationship. There was a pre-stage of rapport and in those conversations and negotiations like I had to actively perform what they found comfortable. And it wasn't about, you know, here's my proposal. It was about, here I am, like me. Be comfortable enough around me to tell me what your company will buy. And so that meant um, 
kind of, yeah, making aesthetic tweaks. And by that, I mean things like how I present myself. So I used to straighten my hair, for example, um, and in the style of clothing, but also the anecdotes I used. So I came like pre-prepared with a set of anecdotes and references, for example, uh, specific to hobbies and holidays and things that we complain about and things that we don't complain about. And I found in that process, you warm up your potential client enough to make them feel comfortable and create enough rapport so then the conversation about business can begin. And that was, I became quite good at it and it was successful and I gained a few clients. I found, however, that I just couldn't keep it up because it was like a performance and because I had to actively do it. Um, it wasn't a passive thing that was part of my natural self or my personality. And then after a while of doing it, maybe like three or four years, um, I didn't really notice, but I think my body noticed and I started really like burning out. Um, it wasn't just that uh, I was suppressing myself but it was the gear change flipping between, you know, who I am day to day and then how I present um, that switching back and forth. I mean, I was really burnt out by the end and like it impacted my health, but I couldn't really articulate even to myself why that process like just wasn't good I just kind of observed that it was doing damage to my body um, and I became so disillusioned with the the process of like I knew that the product I was offering was really great but then on top of that I really resented having to try to show myself as you know safe enough to them to not scare them or think that um you know it, it was all for for their comfort and I mean they in that the the clients I was targeting were um kind of uh, corporations particularly in the finance and tech sector Researcher and creative technologist Yasmin Boudiaf describes her art practice as tinfoil hat research. She creates playful projects rooted in deep research methodologies, ranging from writing to computing, in order to shed some light on the shape-shifting white devil tactics behind ruling powers and new technologies. As part of the Algerian diaspora, and with a background in science, 
Yasmin's projects investigates the relationship between technology and social structures, cultural memory, and policymaking. Drawing on a mix of traditional and non-traditional research methods to analyze and compare publicly available data and infrastructures. In this podcast, Yasmin Boudiaf walks us through some of her experiences in the corporate world and the performative aspects of negotiating the deeply entrenched British class system. She talks about AI ethics and the theatre behind policymaking, as well as soft power and newspeak. She invites us to think about passive forms of resistance and to come up with non-colonial forms of cultural archiving. She also points out the lack of originality in how the state and capitalism work. Or, as she puts it, how they are not the sophisticated minds they make us think they are. Yeah, so, for example... Um, once I'd built enough rapport with a client and made them comfortable enough, then they could share secrets with me for how I could then gain the business. Um, so one project that I was selling was, uh, virtual reality training, um, on misogynistic microaggressions. And the aim was, so I I developed, um, after much research, a series of uh, like virtual reality training programs that tackled misogynistic microaggressions in workplaces. And then the service was to provide this as training for mostly executives. And I remember one time I, I went to um, a client, which was a bank, and I said, okay, so here's my offering. But then on the phone, they said, oh, can you not come into our office? Uh, can we just meet in a cafe outside first, and then we can have the meeting in the office? And I thought that was a bit strange, but fine. So I met them in a cafe. And it was two people from their human resources And by that time, I'd built enough rapport for them to be comfortable and upfront with me. And they said, we've looked at your proposal and it's really great. We just have some comments. And I said, okay. And the main comment was that um, for for them to be able to pass it on to their executive board, they needed to frame it differently to how I was framing it. They knew that the board would not like the framing of, this is some training uh, around misogynistic microaggressions. Instead, they said, this should be framed as leadership training. And also, please don't use the word misogyny anywhere and they said then 
they're more likely to, to buy in. And in that moment, it was quite easy for me to say, okay, sure, yeah, I'll change this and then I'll do it. And it was fine, it was successful. And it wasn't until much, much later that I like replayed this conversation. Um, and, you know, one small compromise is not a big deal, but I realized that I was making compromises everywhere. And in every conversation, not just compromises with my, like the thing I was making in my offering, but compromises with myself. And all these small little compromises, I think in a more profound sense were chipping away at, at my sense of self. Um, and only in retrospect do I realize how how ridiculous that is. And this was before the hashtag MeToo movement. So there was no room for um, informed debate on this. I didn't have a good enough vocabulary to contest their position and say, you know, actually this is important and you need to confront this. Um, and it, it was like a power dynamic that also meant that I was not in a position to um, push back. It was just like I knew that if I did not fit this desirable criteria, it would just be a no. And they'd go with somebody else who was willing to pander to their um, like sense of in a grandeur. Yeah, and, and another time, it was a completely bizarre moment, and it was another bank again, where I, I gave my demo to one guy who was the head of human resources. And then after the demo, he just completely said point blank to me, uh, we don't have any misogyny here in this whole bank. And I'm not gonna mention what the bank was called, but <laughs> it's one of the biggest global banks. And then he stood up and he opened the door. And then I realized that, okay, so the meeting is over. He didn't say the meeting is over, no thank you, you know, goodbye. He just stood up and opened the door. And then I left with all my equipment. Um, and I was more confused than anything. But again, I only realized after a short time and thinking back about it that, you know, trying to uh, institute change, like from my position, was so futile. Like it was, it was so demoralizing. Um, and then, yeah, I I basically stopped, um, yeah, I stopped trying to um, make change by myself using the mechanics of the institutions that I was trying to change because I'll never be good enough. Like, uh, I will never be able to fit the desirability criteria 
in order to be respected enough uh, to to push through uh, like what I wanted to do and, and what I thought was right. And there were, you know, lots of these moments of like uh, active censorship, um, not just from the client side, but also from myself. And it just got so exhausting, like uh, trying to, to please this ideal of what a respectable person who looked like me was. Um, and then I thought, I, I don't want to try anymore and life is too short. And also, why am I trying so hard to, to please a group of people who like will never like uh, will never love me as well and it stopped becoming about you know a business thing it was just you know who who am I serving um and so I I decided to step back from that and think again um and then I decided to close that business and to go back to studying. I've always been interested in technology and its relationship with humans. Um, I was interested in storytelling, particularly documentary film, and I thought that uh, non-linear and interactive storytelling was fascinating and I wanted to explore um, what are the different ways you could do that um, and so yeah that's that's when I started a master's in computational art and it exposed me to not just new different types of technologies I can play around with but most importantly um, computational philosophy and computational theory and somehow it all started making sense and I realized that um, the technological end product to me at least was not as important as the process for arriving there and it was the process that I felt was really exciting and that like I wanted to be a part of and explore and I think that way of doing things of really thinking deeply about the process um, felt more fulfilling to me than you know yeah because my initially I was using um like styles of innovative design that were you know, based in Silicon Valley and startup culture. And then when I started moving away from that, it just completely opened my mind. Um, yeah, and I, I developed a new relationship with technology in that sense um, that was more, I guess that was kinder to myself as well because now I wasn't 
using these metrics on myself that were externally imposed, I was developing metrics in real time that honoured the project that I was working on, but also that were kinder to my body. Um, and I was moving away from this solutionist approach of like deliverables and more into like just ignoring linear time and just thinking, you know, here's something I want to explore and I will just give as much resource as I can without compromising, you know, my health or other people. Um, and then I, I kind of, I'm still not quite comfortable with calling myself an artist, but I realised that that was an artistic process. Um, yeah, calling myself an artist is still not something I, I do very often, especially not verbally. Um, I do, you know, write down that I'm an artist because it's legible to people and it's, you know, something that people can use to access my work. But firstly, it's because my original training was in the sciences and the process that I used was really founded in a kind of scientific research process, which I still do. Like I, I do research, I do analysis, I, you know, construct thoughts and ideas in terms of hypotheses and I try to prove them right or prove them wrong. I also respect the scientific process of, you know, it, it doesn't pontificate or state this is what re reality is. It just says, from all the evidence and observations we have, this is what we think reality is. And I, I really enjoy existing in that space of this is what we think is happening but we're very open to being proven wrong and I think that's a really honorable way of being instead of having a conclusive stance of I've done all my work I've done all my research this is my output and it's perfect and if you try to argue against me I'm just going to argue back I also like, you know, the this idea of existing as a community where people who do scientific research are just building on each other's work. You know, there's there's nothing that's done in isolation and you know, part of the culture is also the idea of uh, you know, when it's done well, it's done in the public and results are shared and scrutinized and can be picked up and taken by somebody else who can advance it. Um, in that sense, this open source style of working, I really love and it's something that is also there in the, the tech world, um, this idea of accessible open source knowledge. I think that's 
the root of how good science is performed. Unfortunately, that's distorted somewhat when institutions become involved and, uh, you know, big companies and things like IP and funding put all sorts of restrictions in place that then distance people from participating meaningfully. I also, I guess it's not the, it's, it's probably like my own prejudices that um, the idea of an artist and what an artist is, I have a picture in my mind of somebody who is very distant from day-to-day -day people and that it's an extremely privileged position to be in that's not easily accessible. Um, and it's linked a little bit with our, I don't know if it's very British or generally Western notion of the genius who is doing something very important and that everybody else just has the privilege of seeing it if and when they decide to show it. Um, it's something that I find a little bit ridiculous. But it's also cultural. So there's, there's a whole politics around it of who gets to be an artist and especially who gets to be a professional artist. They would have needed to have support from a whole range of entities, including artistic institutions and probably have to have a way of supporting themselves while they're making the art. And to me, as a working class person, that looks like a tremendous amount of cultural capital and knowing how to navigate the art world, um, which I find like completely elusive to me, um, not just for the, the class aspect, but the social aspect. The idea of uh, selling yourself, uh, not just in a kind of selling your artwork, but selling yourself in like day to day when you talk to people and networking, I, I know that's part of what it means to, to be an artist today. And it's just something that I'm not good at, but I also don't want to be good at. Like I, I don't want to be a salesperson. Um, and I recognize it as something very similar to when I first got into tech of, okay, I'm, I'm gonna start performing this desirability. Um, and I fear what it will do to my health again, um, and also to my creativity. So I'm, I'm very resistant to labels, especially um, labels that originate in, in cultural settings that I'm not a part of and will never be a part of.
part of what I see is um, this sort of respectability politics of if you want to be seen as an artist in the eyes of the British arts establishment, I've noticed often that you have to, it's, it's the opposite of what needs to be done in, um, in my experience in the kind of commercial tech world. There you have to suppress and underperform your otherness, whereas in the art world, you have to overexpress, maybe even exaggerate your um, ethnicity, for example. Like, people want you to participate in a project or to speak on a panel because, you know, they, they want, like, an ethnic minority-looking female to talk about how hard it is being, uh, you know, a, an immigrant and they want a little taste of this, like, exotic culture, um, but only a small taste. Like, don't, <laughs> don't get too political, but just give us some sort of little curiosity that then we can make an anecdote out of and make a nice press release and put it out there. Um, I see the same trap that I'm trying not to fall into. Yeah, to, to provide some context on the AI Justice Matrix, I was part of a fellowship program that was hosted by a think tank on AI policy. And it's, you know, kind of situated in that context that, um, that fed into what the project became. Originally, the idea was to, you know, develop a platform where discourse around AI ethics and data technologies can happen. And then I started becoming very cynical about the possibility of that at all being possible. And I think the the, the kind of subheading of, like, the title is The AI Justice Matrix, and the subtitle is The Futility of Policycraft. And I realised that each time, you know, there was uh, an emergent technology that had the potential to do great harm and also great good, Deciding on how it should be used, um, particularly like in the context of on the public, those decisions fell to um, often people that were not affected by, by the greatest potential harm of that thing. And I think when I was younger, um, Again, in, I, I was always thinking that, um, you know, we live in a democracy and that if you're 
good and if you did everything right and you meaningfully participate then you can affect change. Growing up I realised that we don't actually live in a democracy, we, you know, what, what I would consider democracy is actually a type of political theatre and that, you know, policy making is accessible to a small subset of people and it has connotations of, you know, class and financial power. And then, you know, in that realisation, I had two choices, either to just be completely disheartened and say, well, um, no change can ever happen and so we should just, you know, give up and, and be sad. Or I could say, well, this, this whole system is kind of ridiculous and I want to um, shine a light of that, on that ridiculousness um, and play around with it more for myself as a coping mechanism of my own powerlessness. <laughs> um, and so it became a kind of platform where I would pull in people's opinions on, on, on this like big monster that, that we call AI, um, but not be restrictive on, on how that is expressed. Um, it was this idea of, so, you know, what, um, what think tanks and what, you know, uh, educational institutions would say is that, or at least they imply, is that we have a shared and static and robust system of ethics and that if only they are applied well to emergent technologies then everyone would be safe. But I recognise that as a type of imperialism to suggest that, you know, um, our, our values are shared and they are good enough to be applied to any new contexts. I also recognise that as, as part of an ongoing and mutating neo-colonialism and white supremacy. And although it's not usually labelled as that, um, I see it, like, I see it made apparent even in, um, like, policies around new technologies. And I am also trying to take people back away from looking at the end point, which is, okay, we have a new technology and let's let's try to work out parameters of, of safety around it. I try to pull people back and get them to think about, well, who decided what safety was? And, you know, who decided 
what harm was. And as soon as you start to like peel back the layers, you'll see that fundamentally it's the same philosophy of, you know, Greco-Roman ideology that's being applied to new emergent tech that's been applied to um, like the education system that's been applied to like the social care system and so much of it has uh, colonial roots even things like um, you know metrics and measuring harm so much of the colonial project um, imposed uh, systems of taxonomy and labeling and kind of making things fit into uh, a preconceived idea of goodness and badness. So I, I talk about you know, the, the shape-shifting white devil. Um, and it's really important to me to like reference rhetoric that has been used before by um, like radical anti-imperialism and like radical anti-imperialists because that's worked. Like um, in particularly in you know uh, African anti-colonial liberation movements, that rhetoric really worked. Um, you know things like, for example, continuing to use the term global south. It's really important, and it was a really important unifying statement because it was recognisable by all these countries that successfully fought against colonialism. And then later on, when, when um, like NGO culture and, uh, you know, soft power started becoming very lucrative, what we saw was this just as an example, the term global south becoming global majority. And I find that really frightening because it wasn't global south countries and people who instigated this turn of phrase. It was, you know, Western NGOs going into these countries and saying, hey, no, 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 you're not the global south, you're the global majority. And so in that small rhetorical shift, it's almost as though you cut the thread of anti-imperialism from one generation to another. This new phrase is not uh, recognised by the kind of elder anti-imperialists and at the same time um, new people kind of getting into um, anti-colonial activism, anti-white supremacist activism are not using the term global south 
And I think that's a good example of the shape-shifting white devil, is how through, um, it seems like this, this kind of turn of phrase is doing people a favour, but it's really not. It's a way of like burying old rhetoric and imposing a new one that I think makes, you know, Western kind of NGOs feel more, much better about themselves. Like a similarly going from using the term black to POC or people of colour, again, to me at least, that has connotations of, you know, we are, you know, we are bestowing this extra quality on black people, on ethnic minorities to say, oh, you have colour and we don't, you know. Um, that's, that's another, I would say, devilish tactic to separate um, people who have built extraordinary solidarity by using the term black as a political term and then to see it shift to people of colour um, that's, that's more palatable, I think, to professional activism. And so when I talk about this underlying uh, white supremacy, I think it appears in very odd places um it it starts off like as a h- historical occurrence that's very easy to identify like you know overt acts of racism you know actual colonialism but it's a bit harder to spot in the modern context so i try to take a lot of time and effort into looking for identifying and making legible of its resertions. So the example I gave is in, in speech, um, in descriptors. You know, I, I don't think I'm crazy or paranoid to think that the, the language of these Western NGOs is an extension of neo-colonial soft power to separate people who've historically fought against imperialism and their descendants, especially people who've, you know, migrated from these countries to the West and grown up in the diaspora. Just in that shift in speech, there's a disconnect because somebody getting into activism and maybe volunteering for an NGO or even working for them is obliged to use this new speak. So I think that's one way of trying to undermine this this idea of um, benevolence. And it's the same idea of you know, we're the good guys and we're benevolent that forms the foundation of 
ethics, as as is described, um, that then goes on to inform policy, and then have those policies become regulations that regulate how new technologies um, are are done. Um, so yeah, I. Do try to pull people back, um, but it's really hard to do because uh, there comes a point when people think that it's impolite to use old terms. But I think it's vital. I think it's a form of I think it's a form of neo-colonial, I think it's a form of resisting neo-colonial, I think, I think there are many battlegrounds in which we can participate in resisting white supremacy and imperialist forces one battleground is in resisting the capture of language in which we use to relate to each other. I think it's really important to me to continue to honour like language that has been used and successfully used to uh, form modes of solidarity amongst oppressed people. Um, and it's also really important to resist falling into the trap of thinking that there exists some sort of ideal um, idea of something like a state having our best interest and having a kind of set basis of ethical behaviour that could then be applied to emergent technologies. Yeah, I, I don't think states have our best interest at all. I think states exist to continue to propagate its own power. Mm. So I would describe uh, like language capture as a form of white supremacy. Um, But I think that many people have the best of intentions when they use, like, Newspeak. Language doesn't just apply to, you know, words. Um, In the rich cultural history of, like, North African, Mediterranean, um, in my project, Mediterranean Hand Gestures, I, I try to, like, highlight and as, as a form of cultural archiving, document 
gestures that I use and that, you know, my family uses. But it's also an argument against notions of um, notions of statehood. So there's there's obviously an Algerian culture, there's you know a culture of every country. But in these particular gestures, there's a pan-Mediterranean gestural language that is there. And I think, you know, people who are part of that can understand each other even if they don't understand the verbal language. And I think that's really beautiful because it um, really undermines this kind of imposed separation where you say, oh, I'm from this country and therefore I speak that language and those are my people. I think it can offer an interesting template to redraw cultural lines and be more inclusive towards our neighbours. But I have a huge ethical dilemma um, because in the in the process of documenting these things, I'm also making legible these gestures to people outside of the culture. And I fear that, you know, I, I haven't set boundaries yet, but at some point, like, I do wonder, like, to what extent am I repeating imperialist ethnographic practices of, you know, firstly, just the process of documentation and then, you know, displaying it, categorising it, labelling it, sharing it. Would I be taking away something that is sacred by capturing it in this project? Um, I also, on, on, on the other hand, um, I also realise that particularly amongst the diaspora that gestural languages, you know, they, they are dying out. Like, just within myself, um, I'm very self-conscious about using my hands too much. Like, even in, in every, you know, public speech I give, like I'm sometimes having to kind of hold my hands together, otherwise I'd be like my arms would be swinging all over the place, and I realise that that's probably for the comfort of the audience. And unfortunately, I'm falling back into the trap of, you know, uh, prioritising comfort of of my audience. But I, I don't think it's too delusional to think about. If I'm, you know, documenting these gestures and labelling them and making them open, because that's the way I work, I, I kind of open source my mm, output. 
what if they are used by like Western intelligence to start to, um, you know, observe people as they're using these gestures and and use it against them? Uh, yeah. So like, what kind of uh, intelligence gathering? could this project be feeding into? So this also speaks to a constant state of paranoia that especially people from uh, Arab backgrounds or any kind of community that's been vilified. Um, it's, it's always in the back of your mind that you, as an individual and as you know, part of a group, you are targeted and are an object of hostility. And so you have to be quite considered in how you uh, express your dissatisfaction with certain powers because they can be interpreted as hostility. Um, yeah, I, amongst, you know, friends and people I know, we always joke that, you know, we're being spied on. And it sounds like a joke, but it, it kind of isn't a joke at the same time. Um, after 9-11 and like 7-7 in the UK, there was a big drive to like recruit from like my community <laughs> informants <laughs> and um, so like we're always like left with the awareness that <laughs> you know we're always trying to be recruited all the time but it's kind of a joke because, like, to be honest, the, the, the kind of, the boogeyman is not as, as scary as, um, as kind of propaganda would have you believe. At the same time, it does plant the seed of paranoia in you. And without verbalising it, there is a constant self-censorship there and you know you're you know from an early age what you should say and what you shouldn't say and I think that also applies to my work this constant negotiation of how much of myself or my culture am I willing to put out there and make accessible and legible because it's not just my art audience that's looking at me it's uh you know state powers and i'm kind of trying to imagine okay maybe they could pick that up and use that or you know in a terrible scenario maybe they could you know use this categorization of hand gestures against somebody and say oh they're they're plotting something and 
used in uh, a closed court somewhere to say, oh, you know, this is how we know you're doing something bad. So I have that fear. Um, and that has to be balanced with this uh, urge to, you know, preserve something for my community that is dying. same way for my project an Algerian techno ritual where I'm trying to I'm still trying to develop it but um, I, I fear I fear loss because it it's not just the loss of a craft or like uh, something aesthetic it's it's the loss of connection between people in our past and you know people here now i think it does like terrible things to a person when they don't have a good sense of where of of their origins and a sense of pride as well. Um, I don't mean that in a nationalistic sense, I mean a sense of connection to people who came before them. Yeah, I'm, I'm constantly trying to, um, in my process, work out ways of cultural archiving that tries to move away from the the harms that um, ethnography and anthropology has has done to to people in the global south including uh, things like exoticizing or like misinterpreting or just stealing I think I'm I'm trying also to develop processes that inform the way that new technologies can be used. So how do I do this without feeding into biometric systems and surveillance systems? And I'm proposing ways of doing that. I also feel a sense of urgency because the subjects that I'm looking at are all women in the you know, 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, and so there's, there's a kind of urgency there to, to capture oral histories. But even when I say that, like capture, I do feel like I'm, you know, a colonialist going, ah, oh, we must go and talk to these people and and take and document yeah it's another difficult balancing that I have to do but that's why I'm really grateful for 
like artistic research and process because you know I can sit comfortably and not having a resolution um I I actually enjoy doing deep research or what I call like tinfoil hat research and I find joy especially in conspiracy theories especially when I discover that it's not a theory it's actually a real world conspiracy um I tend to look into publicly available information and put that forward because I'm also part of my work is saying that anyone can be a researcher and anyone can can do um, like research-based art I think it's also a personality trait or maybe a personality defect where I once I find something curious, I can't relax until I've fully exhausted everything I can around it. Um, and yeah, sometimes it, it's long periods of time and I forget to, to eat and sleep and it's just... A thing where you know you you can't you can't move on to the next thing until this thing is fully exhausted and it just occupies my mind um I, I I kind of enjoy being in that moment because then you're just suspended in this world of potential and you're just knocking on doors and pulling strings and you discover something that really captivates you and then that leads to something else and then that leads to something else and that leads to something else. But one thing that makes this process a bit less daunting is recognising the lack of ori originality in how these entities operate. And so what begins to appear is in that lack of originality are patterns of behaviour. Even linking that to, particularly in the UK context, where people who may work in government or um, who are CEOs of tech companies or are, you know, think tank leaders or academics they're kind of all the same person in the sense that you know we have a really well-defined class system and it takes a person who has gone to particular private schools and then has a particular kind of education in a particular institution that then take on these positions of 
you know, I'd, I'd define them as like upper middle class people. And they might be a, a senior civil servant for a while and then work for a management consultancy firm for a while and then maybe go back into the public sector in maybe a, a foundation that gives grants and then go back to working for a lobby group. And, and so when you recognise that it's the same sort of person, you could start to role play in your mind. Okay, so what would you do? And it's always the same thing. Like, I interact with people like this all the time. I'm aware that I'm being incredibly reductive, but it's a useful way of working to not assume that there's anything sophisticated going on but to assume that it's this group of people that you are caricatured and their motivations are that they want to make money, they are aware that they're not very clever, but are very desperate to seem clever. They fear being poor. And it's a huge fear, like they fear that um, their children may not get into a nice school. And so out of that fear of keeping up appearances, they will do and say whatever is necessary to maintain their social position. And in that way, you realise that they're not diabolical. <laughs> they're just, they're just desperate to maintain a position. And then you can start to see how they would operate as a manager. They rely on social networks to, to win business, win contracts, give contracts. And so when, when you realise that there is this professional managerial class, it's, it's like creating a profile that you can then put into an imaginary like uh, agreement between a tech company and a government agency. And then I would do a little role play of what would this type of person in the tech company say to that the same type of person in a government agency. And I can kind of imagine what that conversation would be, how they would broker a deal between them, given that they're motivated by all the things that their, their lives have, have been like constructed uh, to prepare them for. Um, they're really concerned with optics, with looking clever, um, and I, I interact with these people a lot and I find them fascinating and I love observing them because I'm learning their ways. <laughs> and this is another example of how I describe as white devilishness manifests. But I also, through this 
imagined caricaturing of these people. I find them being kind of endearing because I don't think they're truly out there to do harm. I think that there's a naivety there and I think a lot of them would convince themselves that they're doing something really, really good and to help people. Um, and part of this is what I was kind of writing about in the AI Justice Matrix under white feminism of how it manifests and like within that subcategory I identify older white feminism and uh, young white feminism and how again this class of woman goes from being a young white feminist to an older white feminist and everything that goes in between and I try to highlight the aesthetic that they tend to have and the rhetoric they tend to use. So in my process when I break it down to that level of the individual who is operating in a larger system, be it like a, a tech company or um, a consultancy or a government agency, you can then start to reverse engineer of how that social dynamic becomes, you know, a, a, a formal contract and then how that then leads on to the product that is put out into the public. And that's another thing that makes me hopeful is that I realise, again, these are not the sophisticated minds that we're led to believe are behind these uh, these these products that go out into the public. It is just this, this type of person that's really insecure in themselves, that's just doing everything they can to maintain their social position. There's a pressure on artists, particularly activist artists or activist researchers, to come up with a neat and well-defined intervention that solves whatever problem you're looking at. I think that way of defining interventions could be a trap. Um, I think that interventions don't necessarily have to be active. They can be passive, like forms of resistance of, okay, I'm, I'm boycotting a thing. Or even smaller than that, just saying, you know, from now on, I'm going to use this word instead of that word. And just committing to using it in your speech. So that's something that I would define as an intervention. Interventions 
also can include building networks of solidarity and just maintaining them, not necessarily needing a call to action. So in my project, Listening Sculptures, I um, one of the listening sculptures is like a Roots to Intervention. And the it's like a line with different points, kind of suggested points of, you know, what would lead to intervention. And it's always defined by the, um, the environment and the, the people involved. You know, but some of the earlier points of, of that line is just this this idea of kinship and realizing that just just having a conscious of awareness that you and like another conscious being are in a moment together and i think that is fundamental to any intervention because it it tells you that you're not alone or deluded and that the thing that you're confronting is observable by somebody else. So I think as a bare minimum, that's enough. And then what's really important to me is world building. And what I mean by that is that using, like, constructing imaginaries between people as spaces for potential and just to play around with ideas. One tragic observation that I have is that sometimes oppressive powers, they can affect you in a material sense in, in your day-to-day life, in what you have access to, um, in your freedom. But what can also end up happening is that they can capture your imagination. And that that's really, really tragic because it's almost as though you're submitting part of your imaginary power when you don't necessarily need to and it's really hard to get out of that once it has been captured by that I mean for example assuming that the only path to systemic change is through like civic participation and you know being a good citizen and going out to vote and, you know, trying to influence policy, I think that is very, very limiting because there's so much more potential when you just reject the idea that that's the only path to change. And so it's vital to produce imaginaries amongst people that, that you form a kinship with 
and then use that space to play around with ideas and even honour ideas that may not be realistic or feasible or, you know, even practical. I think just the exercise of putting a radical thought into this space and having other people look at it and play around with it is like the amount of validation that you get. You know, it's it's tremendous. And it also, through that process, you, through like practice, you become better at tapping into this collective consciousness. Um, and the more you do it, I think that we we used to do it a lot as children through imaginary play. Um, and I think we kind of start to lose that when we become adults and have to be realistic and think practically and think more in isolation. So how can we reclaim these spaces, these imaginaries, and then how can we invite other people to participate in them so that one idea can be put in there and then picked up by somebody else and then contributed to, and without the pressure of, okay, and now we need an outcome, and now we need an intervention, and now we need but just being okay with them sitting there or them just being completely dismissed or dying and moving on. I love it because it's a form of training for you to get out of the capture of imagination by oppressive forces or just by day-to-day -day reality. Um, but it's also fertile ground um, in a kind of cosmic sense for building solidarities and kinship. It requires no material resources to access it as well. So you, you don't... So often to participate in... Um, activism like there's a barrier to entry because it requires you to have enough leisure time to be able and energy and you know all sorts of like physical and practical barriers um, a certain amount of like cultural capital as well to, to find these groups and get in there but in the imaginary, like you, like everyone can participate. Um, and it's just about building these instantaneous spaces. And it can be done just in a conversation between two people, like maybe who live together. And you construct a space and you play around in it. And maybe you close that space and it's gone forever, but maybe you keep that space open and then you invite somebody else in to play around in it. And then maybe that space can go beyond just kind of verbal play 
and maybe it can exist online and then invite people in. And that's kind of what I'm doing with the AI justice matrix, but also with the entanglements project where I kind of make online spaces and then invite people to contribute in different mediums. Sometimes those spaces are left open and sometimes they're closed. Again, acknowledging that if we behave as though there's a time limit or, um, you know, after a workshop, you can't think about this anymore. Like My um, listening sculptures are available online in like uh, as a blank document for people to use afterwards. It's a powerful, it's an empowering thing just to give yourself permission to access imaginary spaces just by yourself or with other people. And then you kind of awaken to the idea that you're, you're part of a, a greater consciousness that you're connected to everyone with. And like in, in my meditation practice, I, every day I kind of try to tap into that. And without going like too far into like zany worlds. Um, but when, when done with another conscious being, something very special happens. And I think that has so much potential power that if nurtured and sustained through imaginary play or through meditation practice, um, I think there's this great potential that over time and through increased kind of solidarity and kinship building, when lots of other people access the same space that eventually it will be at such a great capacity that external oppressive powers will have no choice but to respect it. Thinking about accessibility, it's a whole range of things and taking inspiration from the um, like disability studies and the Crypt Techno Science Manifesto and this idea that a person isn't necessarily disabled but it's a disabling world. I also apply that to my own messaging and legibility. So I focus on technologies um, that affect day-to-day -day life and day-to-day -day people. So I focus on points of relatability, such as healthcare. So when I choose a um, company to talk about, I do my best to make sure that there is 
a point of accessibility where somebody who's not of a tech or an academic or an activist background, like there's an entry point into the conversation because they can relate to using the healthcare system in the UK. I think that's really important. Um, and I always try to um, put out works in progress to people to see how accessible it is, like in the um, materials that I use, like can somebody take it and participate and play around with it without a barrier to entry like uh, a physical barrier to entry or you know do they need to have had a special education or does it cost something to participate or you know I use simple language like all the time and try not to fall too deep into like uh, inaccessible like academic speech and I try to make um, pieces of writing very short or just not have pieces of writing at all and what I tend to do is give workshops and performative lectures because I'm more confident that more and different types of people would be able to access the work that way. Um, it also means that by catering to a more general audience, I'm also less attractive to the type of audience that has more power and money. And so it's like a bad business decision. Um, but I think, I think it's like for me as a person, it's vital. Humour is extremely important and it's for me a coping mechanism because sometimes you're, you're dealing with real acts of violence and to confront it directly is like, is like looking at the sun. You, you just can't because it will destroy you to like confront violence on people in different forms. So instead, I don't look at the sun, I kind of sit in the shade, I acknowledge that the sun is there, but I, I kind of try to break it down and confront different elements of it using satire and using like playful undermining. I think one um, form that I've seen critique 
take, which I kind of disagree with, is to reproduce the, the thing that you're trying to critique. So, you know, for example, um, like reconstructing a form of surveillance and then saying to people, oh, look at that, that's bad. I think it's, it's more worthwhile to take something, break it down and then reconstruct it in a different way. Um, I also think it's important to remind people that, as I said earlier, that there are not like extremely clever, sophisticated systems and people that are behind these things. It's just ordinary people. Like it's, it's just self-interested, cowardly, sometimes creative, but ultimately just very, very ordinary human beings that are behind all of these things. And they're not cleverer than you. Um, so much of it is theatrical. And, you know, it's, it's like the, the emperor's new clothes. As soon as one person points and says, oh, you're just naked, you're just ridiculous, then other people can, can start to appreciate that, oh, wait, I've, I've given you so much power through my imagination I'm now now that it's being pointed at and ridiculed I can get back some of my imagine imaginary space that I've been giving to you and instead replace it with like a bit of humor a bit of anything other than reverence so I think it's really important to to use humour to um, to break down the intentional theatrics of of these oppressive powers. Mm -hmm.